welcome to the Met Aaron podcast. I'm Noel Fitzpatrick. And I'm Liz Walsh. And today we're going to take a look at weather and climate myths. Yeah, there are a lot of different ones out there, whether they're in weather or climate. Some are based on experience and a little bit of fact, and others are maybe have taken a little bit of fact and ran with it and, and have built up a whole uh, mythology around it. So we're going to try and uh, filter through some of that with some of the more common commonly heard weather myths and sayings and also some of the common things you may hear of people who are expressing skeptical views when it comes to climate change. So today uh, we are releasing this on on the around the the summer solstice. So we might start off with a couple of sun related uh, topics. I think probably the most famous of all uh, weather sayings um, is related to that with the red sky at night shepherd's delight red sky in the morning shepherd's warning. Is there uh, much truth to that Liz? Yeah, no, I think there's, there is, you know, within limits, there's, there's a little bit of truth to this one. Um, We're basic, it's basically to do with um, light scattering. So um, during sunset, the sky changes colour from blue to yellow to orange and red. And as light travels through more and more atmosphere, it can count, it encounters more and more particles. So the blue frequencies get scattered over and over again. And then when you come to when the sun is low in the sky, um, all that's left for your eyes to observe is the slower frequencies, which are um, more ready in in colour. I think the red sky at night, shepherd's delight. Well, the weather in the mid latitudes uh, generally moves from west to east. And that's actually true for both hemispheres. Um, just uh, like, you know, through the general circulation, you can uh, look back at our episode two, um, what causes Ireland's weather. And we do talk about that in that episode there. During sunrise and so- sunset, um, basically, I guess if you're looking at the sun and you can still see it out to the west at night, it it does mean that um, there aren't any clouds there. And so it means that there's probably some clear weather out there. Um, and so that would be an indication that there's high pressure out there. And so um, sun, sun in the west, um, red sky at night, shepherds or sailors delight. Um, so conversely, then red sky in the morning, um, shepherds or sailors warning. Um, well, that means that the the fine weather is is in the east this time because obviously the sun rises in the east. Um, so it means that you're seeing under the cloud bank. <laughs> I guess um, the the intimation is is that um, there's there's actually cloud above where the sun is rising, and so um, you've and the weather is traveling from the west generally. So um, the good weather has already left us. It's already left us, and there's there's going to be some more inclement weather on the way. But that's the that's the general idea, and where it within limits would be would be true. So basically, um, no, this saying is valid in the mid latitudes if the timing of the weather systems um, is just right. So that is, um, you've got a clearing, fair weather clearing in the east at sunrise and approaching clouds from the west and then um, clearing prior, like fair weather approaching at sunset um, in the west as the clouds exit to the east. But if the weather systems and their associated clouds are moving from south to north, say, as we might uh, do, as we've seen actually in this 
you know, at this time of year and we do have a low pressure to the south of us, that um, that red sky at night, shepherds or sailors to light does not um, does not actually work. Um, it's it's a, um, basically a a, um, a weather myth. Um, in that case, but it can, it's there is some truth to it, but it depends on the conditions, basically. So I guess either if the whether the sun is is shining or not, um, whether it's a red sky at night or the morning, it is the sun that's giving us the energy that that powers our our, our weather and climate, right? You know, whether it's a, a, a sunny day or a cloudy day, and um, understandably, there are uh, some myths surrounding the idea that it's changes in the energy that's coming from the sun that's causing climate change that we're seeing today, um, which is which is understandable. And, and there are elements of truth to this. Um, there are cycles uh, of the sun's energy. Um, most notably, it has a, an 11-year cycle where the level of energy it outputs uh, varies uh, by small amounts during that time, small ups and downs. And there, there are longer-term cycles as well. Um and and people have asked the question: Well, is is climate change simply just a, a response to these changes? Um, so as I said, like the, there's there's always some some truth to it to these uh, to these sort of myths. And um, the Earth has responded before to these changes. Um, in fact, if we look back over the temperature record, say over the last couple of hundred years or so, um, we have seen that the Earth's climate has been in sync with uh, these eleven year solar cycles up until about 1950. Um, from that period on, the Earth continued to warm, but we haven't seen any ch- net change in solar output. Studies recently have shown that the solar output has actually diminished slightly during that period. So if our Earth has continued to warm, then there must be another source of energy that's providing the heat uh, for that warming. Um, and this would, again, so there's, there's there's an element of truth to it, uh, but it's not what's driving the change that we're seeing today. And there's sort of a broader, I think, opinion in terms of whether or not climate change in general is just natural. You know, that uh, it's, you know, I'm sure you've heard as well is, you know, climate change is natural. We, we, we've seen that it's happened before, for example. And it ha- it has. I mean, like, you know, you can look back at ice cores um, showing a, a periods of glacial, uh, global glacial cooling and and heating uh, going on. But um, I think the highest that it ever got to in 800,000 years was, you know, 289 parts per million in the CO2. Is that right? That's exactly right. Yeah. As you say, we we have ice records going back, you know, almost a million years. And uh, so we're able to see which are natural, you know, changes in our climate, which do happen and and they're happening before, you know, societies were ever established and all those kinds of things. And as you say, Liz, in those ice records that we can look back at, we can see uh, CO2 rising and falling at the same time as temperature. So they they match each other very well. Temperature and CO2 rise and fall together. Um, And as you mentioned, the highest that CO2 rose to during that, say, 800,000-year period or so before the Industrial Revolution was just just below 300 uh, parts per million of carbon dioxide. Um, I think 2019, the the average uh, was 411 parts per million. So we can see that there has been a substantial jump that's been higher than anything for at least the last 800,000 years. Um, But even within that cycle, even within that 
that period, we can see this natural variability in climate change. And that's that's driven primarily by, again, we're going back to the sun. It's primarily by how um, our orbit around the, the sun varies and how um, the axis that our planet has, how the tilt of that axis and how it moves varies as well. It's a, a combination of sort of cycles known as the Milankovitch cycles. Um, and by sort of tracking those, we, we understand those really well. You know, I mean, we know that they happen around every 100,000 years, this rise and fall in our climate. And they actually cause the, the ice ages that we that we, you might be familiar with. So if you have uh, this, this really sort of well understood uh, and well defined pattern through the record, and then all of a sudden we see this jump uh, taking place, it, it's, it's allows us, it gives us confidence basically that, that what we're seeing is not a natural cycle. Um, in fact, if we were sort of following the cycle due to these Milankovitch cycles, as I said, these solar uh, cycles, uh, we'd actually be entering a period of, of cooling. Um, so they don't explain why we're we're, we're approaching this. Uh, we're, we're, we've sort of continued to warm in the last 150 years or so. And it's also, I mean, what you see as well is like it's not just um, inter like over long periods of time. You know, like even in within the year, there's a there's a CO2 cycle on Earth as well. Like you know, where the um, where I think we think t- we talked about it about a year ago. Um, That's right. The first yeah. episode, and I remember it was like the, the, the basically the breathing. Um, uh, like so, th- there's this like famous measurement that, that takes place on an island in Hawaii called um, Mano Mauna Loa. Yep. Um, and um, there's like a there's a, a high like basically the the highest concentration of CO2 um, is taken around April, May time. And then the low um, lowest concentration for the year is taken around October time. And it coincides with basically the um, the plant life um, in, in the Northern Hemisphere where we have all the land. There's a natural cycle there as well. And, and CO2 does vary um, yearly. And you can see that um, like variance um, yearly, year on year, um, happening. But as we've seen in the in the last while, that variation, um, that basically the peak in May time or April May time is just getting higher and higher every year, and the minimum uh, or the, the trough happening in October is is getting less. Or well, the trough is still there, but the the number is keeps on rising the whole time. And as as you say, I mean, it's 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 a it's a combination of different cycles. We have short term and long term cycles, and they're very well understood. We have the mechanism for them, as you say. The short term is due to you know varying sort of photosynthesis in in, in winter and summer, and then long term is because of these solar uh, orbital cycles, things like that. Um, and what sticks out like a store, sore thumb over you know millions of years of 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 records is uh, what's been happening in the last uh, hundred years or so. Um, but obviously it's not, it's not all about sun. I mean, in Ireland, we get occasional rain here as well. And, uh, we've developed, Manny's a saying, uh, related to this. Uh, I'm sure you've heard it as well is whenever I say, oh, I work for Medair and people often ask me, oh, where do you keep the cow? You know, uh, referring to this old saying about how cows lie down, uh, if it's going to rain, um, surely there's no truth in this, is there? 
Oh, my mum loved that thing. I mean, my mum is from County Mayo and um, and like basically if if we drove by and there was, we drove by a field full of cows, if the cows are lying down, it's going to rain. Well, it was Mayo and it was the west of Ireland. Of course, it was going to rain. <laughs> it rains all the time, <laughs> except maybe in the springtime when they have their, their high pressure, um, like, you know, in long dry periods. Well, but, I'm looking outside um, my window here and it's not raining, so... <laughs> <laughs> So, you know, but this uh, cow's lying down. I mean, I did have a look at this one. Um, and I suppose, like, the, the thing is, like, animal behaviour, um, you know, go, going back in history, before we had modern weather forecasting techniques, animal behaviour has long been a favourite weather indicator. And um, one of the superstitions was that if, there, if the cow is lying down, um, the rain is coming. Now, um, cows lie down for a variety of reasons, including cow- cud chewing. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it's tempting to dismiss this claim as utterly ridiculous. <laughs> but um, further rumination suggests that it might have a leg to stand on after all. So basically, there was a scientific study done actually back in 2013, uh, done by the University of North Missouri and Arizona. But it was investigating the issue of um, environmental impacts. Um, so climate change again, environmental impacts on dairy production and cattle welfare for the agricultural industry in the US. Um, and the, this study suggests not that cows lie down when not that cows lie down when it, it's about to rain, but they definitely stand up um, to disperse heat. So um, the interest in the in the heat stress, it kind of coincided with, um, you know, the, the spreading demographic of the United States and the dairy industry um, from the Midwest to warmer and more arid climates, such as the desert Southwest. So they wanted to kind of look at um, how cattle would behave in that kind of environment. And um, they they wanted to make improvements as well to warm weather dairy housing um, and provide more efficient technologies for cooling animals exposed to hot climates. Um, but heat stress remained the, the important environmental stressor on dairy cattle and the production loss due to heat stress um, was estimated at something like $900 million annually to the US dairy herd. So, um, so basically... What they found was that they fitted the cows with two data loggers um, and uh, measured their core temperature and whether they were standing up or lying down. So they had a logger on one of their legs as well so they could tell um, what was happening, whether they were lying down. And they found that the consensus was they found that um, when their core temperature was elevated or they were too hot, they stood up Um, and it kind of... uh, so arguably, you could say that in cooler air, um, cows might uh, lie down and cooler air usually means that rain might be coming. Um, but I think it's it's a hard one to find. Uh, it's a tenuous link, really. Um, I tenuous, think yeah, definitely. <laughs> I think there's, um, there's a great many reasons why um, cows lie down and... Um, Rain coming is certainly not uh, the the most prescient one, I think. Um, it's probably to do with okay. like, well, I just need to digest my food here. Or, um, oh, there's a really nice patch of grass. I think I'm going to sit down here. <laughs> they might just be tired, right. you know. So, yeah, I kind of, I have to say um, cows lying down for rain is basically um, a myth. And yeah. Okay. Yeah. 
Busted. Busted. <laughs> but but yeah. well, but they do st- they do stand up due to um to disperse heat. So maybe if they're standing up, it's too hot, <laughs> or it's um it's <laughs> their core temperature is too high. <laughs> One of the animals that we genuinely used to look at, I know, say growing up, I know it was um you know if you're deciding if you're going to hang out with the washing or whatever, were were the swallows, particularly this time of year when they, when they've come back. Um, the idea that they would they would fly lower uh, if there was rain due, and our kind of understanding was it because that's they were trying to catch the insects, and there does seem to be some level of truth truth to that. Uh, yeah, I think so. Like, I mean, like because we've got um, we've got kind of these high tech radars now, and um, actually, you can um, on some of the radars, uh, like I definitely. When I was down in uh, New Zealand, um, I remember seeing um, a swarm of insects um, on the radar. Uh, so that was quite something. But basically, we, we can track, um, like insects can now be tracked even on weather radars. But um, so there is a little bit of truth on this. Like, you know, so the saying, I think, is like when when swallows fly high, the weather will be dry. And um Basically, um, the insects uh, can be lifted in the thermals um, that's created by no clouds, lots of sunshine, especially in the summertime. Not necessarily always, but that's the general general idea. Um, so you get thermals um, happening. And so the, the insects are light enough to be riding um, on these like, kind of warm uh, columns of air um, that are rising um, so the swallows have to fly higher to um, to to find their prey, basically. So um, the converse thing of that would be the, the insects are closer to the ground underneath the cloud, trying not to get out, of, to, trying to get out of the cloud. And so the swallow is following them. So the bigger thing that um, you can, we like we used to be able used to have radars so you couldn't see the insects. Um so but before we, we saw the swallows and the swallows are following their prey down to the lower um parts of the atmosphere to catch them. Um so so that's the that was the the truth behind that one. And so that one um not like that's that's probably uh a good one, but uh, once again, you have to say that one swallow doesn't always make a summer either, you know, and and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, just because you see one swallow flying high, it doesn't mean like the weather is going to be dry. It just what you mentioned there about the seeing the insects on radar. I remember when we were in the states last year for doing uh, storm chasing. They've obviously really high resolution radar there, and and you could see. Um, the gust fronts from these thunderstorms. So basically when they put out this sort of uh, strong winds ahead of the thunderstorms, uh, you could spot them on the radar because they were lifting all these uh, clouds of insects and you would just see these. It it wouldn't look exactly like rainfall on the radar. Yeah, but it was just like these really small, um, smaller sort of little patches, uh, almost like sort of dust or, or something that you could see on the radar. And it was basically from these strong winds lifting all these clouds of insects um, up into the air. There's a whole range of, of rain-related sayings, though. I mean, another is, is which is one I hadn't, wasn't that familiar with before, and I have to say was that um, the mountains can appear to be closer when rain is approaching. I suppose some kind of an, an optical illusion, I guess, if, if, uh, if there's rain coming in, in the atmosphere. Yeah, so I had a look at this one, um, and there's possibly an element of truth in this. And as you alluded to, there's a little bit of um, 
some kind of optical illusion in this. So, in fact, like I have to say, Leonardo da Vinci was actually quite interested in this. He wrote um, that the atmosphere is blue because of the darkness above it. Um, the black above mixed with the white light made um, a blue sky. Um, and there's a lot of blue sky between an observer and a distant mountain, he explained. And so the blue atmosphere tints the mountains bluish, like a red glass tints reddish um, any objects seen through the glass. So thus Leonardo described the farther away an object is, the bluer it should be painted. Um, so Leonardo's observations were, were accurate. Um, but his hypothesis wasn't entirely correct. So um, today we know that the sky is blue. And as I explained earlier, clouds are white, sunsets are red, and distant mountains appear bluish because of light scattering. Um, So the Earth's atmosphere is, like, as we said already, it's composed of these tiny molecules of, a lot of it's nitrogen and oxygen molecules, which are very small. And when light uh, strikes the tiny molecules, they vibrate. And the fast vibrations um, are kind of blue and violet, right? Um, Generate blue and violet light. Um, And the slower frequencies generate the red. And so when you can't see much of a contrast between between the mountains and the blue sky, you probably think that they're they're far farther away than they actually are. Sure, Whereas, they're just kind of more if, faded in the background. Yeah. Exactly. So so basically, if the sky was say white or grey um, with clouds, then possibly the the colour of the hills would seem the the contrast with the colour of the of the mountains um, would contrast with that kind of white white or grey colour, and so they would appear closer. And so, and so, and then obviously, if you've got clouds and or grey clouds, you're looking at um, water vapor um, in the air and water falling from those clouds. So, um, so in some ways, I can see that there might be some truth, um, truth to that saying. I know working as a, an observer, and I, I'm sure as you as a forecaster as well, one of the things you look for is visibility. You know, you comment on mm. how far you can see, um, and. I know, generally speaking, when it's raining, your visibility has usually diminished quite a bit, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, that was one thing. Like, I look, I was found this on the on the internet that um, there was one postulation, I guess, that said that um, if it's raining in the vicinity of the mountain, um, the falling rain might be clearing out the dust and other particles in the air, leaving the air more transparent. But um, I know, like from you know, especially our aviation forecasters, but you as an observer as well at an airport know that the the advice that we give um, like pilots and airplanes filing, uh, flying in is that, you know, or if for a sea area, say, we always say visibility is reduced, moderate or poor in, in falling precipitation. Um, so I kind of debunked that one, like knowing in my head that that's probably not correct. And I kind of went for this more, um, I think I could see the I can I'm more believable of the of the contrast between the colors and things appearing optically closer or further away um, due to whether they're um, the same color as the sky or a different color. It's interesting that you were saying it was da Vinci who, who noticed those things. I mean, there have been a number of cases where it's been artists who have maybe not directly discovered something, but they've referred to it sort of indirectly just because they're so observant. You know, they're they're really interested in their in their craft and their their they're observing, you know, the subject that they want to paint and 
there have been a number of examples like um i think it was turner who noted in, in his paintings that you could see in his sunsets that he was painting they got um noticeably redder for a couple of years because and it was as a result of a massive uh, volcano which had pumped loads of dust into the stratosphere and it, it led to like some redder sunsets for a couple of years and this you can see this in turner's paintings he has redder sunsets uh, during the time that he'd made those paintings um and even uh, I did not know that no that's really interesting yeah it's really cool um there's other ones like a uh, starry a uh, starry night it has all these swirls running through it and um now this is what's been suggested was that um he, van gogh was was essentially painting turbulence in the air that because he was so used to looking at the sky and seeing the shimmering effect of particularly maybe in warmer countries at night say uh, of air uh, rising and twisting and turning, turning and c- sort of causing that distortion in the sky. That this—that's what he was actually representing in that kind of spiral uh, sort of um, effect that you see in that painting as well. That's really cool. So water vapor is obviously um, also very important for climate. Uh, it's uh, the most important um, greenhouse gas in our atmosphere. Um, but it's it's naturally occurring, and because of that, there is some skepticism in regards to how big of an impact are we really having when you've already got this gas that is naturally occurring and is was there long before we came along. And as far greater concentrations um, than CO two, right? Exactly. It, its impact in terms of of of, uh, of uh, warming is is about twice the effect of carbon dioxide, um, a little bit more, in fact. Um, and as I said, it is it is part of a natural cycle. So there is truth to say, oh, you know, there's there's a big natural, you know, climate greenhouse gas uh, effect that we've had nothing to do with. And this is true. In fact, if there wasn't a natural greenhouse effect, uh, our planet would be much colder than it is now. It would be about minus 18 degrees Celsius on average, uh, rather than the current sort of uh, 14 degrees or so that it is on average, which allows us to, to live on the planet. So we, we're grateful for the natural greenhouse effect. But the the difference is um, it's it's finely balanced. The, the level of water in our atmosphere is finely balanced with the other systems of the Earth, with the oceans, with the land system. And it's very sensitive to changes in temperature. So if we change the temperature of our planet even slightly, um, say, for example, if the air is warmer, warmer air can hold more water vapor. It can uh, lead to greater evaporation and greater levels of water vapor in our atmosphere. So that is where the human element comes into it. We've got a finely balanced system, and then we are adding large amounts of CO2 into it. And increasing CO2 leads to more uh, an increase in, in, in temperature, an increase in, in heat. And that increase in heat allows more water vapor to accumulate in the atmosphere, which, as we just said, is an important greenhouse gas and will lead to further temperature increases. So it's kind of like a, a vicious a vicious cycle. You know, the, the, the warmer it gets, the more water vapor you get, and then it gets leads to more warming. And uh, it's what we call a positive feedback. So it's, it's, it's true to say there's a natural cycle. It's true to say that water vapor is the biggest component of that and it, it's naturally occurring it's not to do with you know human activities or whatever but we're the ones that are sort of whacking it out of balance yeah and it could be you know the effect is enhanced basically because of 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 what's what's occurring at the moment um due to greenhouse gas emissions 
and and water vapor in in our atmosphere uh going back to sort of shorter terms sort or of weather predictions um at nighttime it is it has created a number of sort of, of well-known sayings right by looking at how the moon is appearing at night there is one it's kind of um found another saying to do with water vapor which was um and it's all surrounding the moon actually um and uh, it goes something like uh, clear moon, frost soon, um, and a watery moon, rain soon. Um, and so, I I mean, this one didn't really require too much research um, because it kind of makes a lot of sense, especially um, in the wintertime. If you've got a clear moon, um, it means that uh, you can see you can see the moon for one, so it's you're not covered over with a blanket of clouds. Um, and so all of that uh, radiation is escaping into space at nighttime and um, and basically cooling uh, the, the ground below. And so obviously if you get cooling and you go um, below, you know, four degrees and... Um, and even zero degrees at the surface, um, on the surface of the ground, you're getting a, a frost. So um, that's where clear moon frost soon um, would would come from. But it'd be more so, more kind of indicative of a winter's night um, here in, in Ireland in the mid latitudes because the temperature doesn't really get that low um, uh, once we hit the summer months um, here it's very hard to get a frost um, but we can get it in the shoulder season so that's kind of spring and autumn um, and the other thing was um, a watery moon so this was this is about kind of um, kind of clouds going around um, clouds around the moon um, producing a, a kind of a, a watery halo effect, really. Um, so you, you basically kind of get a halo um, or, or a layer of cirrus cloud um, made of ice cr crystals around the moon. And so you can still see the moon, but it's kind of translucent. And um, the ice crystals are acting as tiny prisms forming a white or sometimes colourful halo around the moon. And um, you see the cirrus stratus cloud often indicates an approaching warm front, say, um, so associated with an area of low pressure. So um, rain or sometimes, you know, like other types of precipitation like snow, um, they're, they're not always going to follow. But um, there's a higher probability if you're seeing a kind of a, a cirrus, uh, a halo around the moon, that there's um, there's some moisture in the upper atmosphere, which means uh, that there could be a, a warm front on the way. I, I've definitely seen this, you know, going out at night, yeah. maybe after a nice day or something, and you see this uh, halo around around the moon. Um, and as you say, I guess with with a warm front, it, it has kind of like a, a diagonal shape, right? So that the, the, the higher part of it might arrive at you first before the lower part does. Uh, it might, that's might right. stretch yeah, out above you. It's kind you. of a slanted, yeah. Right. So that's you're kind yeah. of seeing the first edges of that passing up, up high, right? in front of the moon and then it's a while before the lower end reaches you down on the ground. Well, I think it's important to say that it's not just the moon. I mean, you could have a halo around the sun as well if it's happening during the day. But um, obviously, yeah, those high clouds are, are something to watch out for and um, when you're looking for a weather coming. Um, sometimes, you know, we like we talked about the cirrus stratus there, but there's also um, 
just cirrus cloud. And sometimes, I, I don't know, sometimes you can see, I certainly look at it, you see um, hooked cirrus and that can indicate um, a front or some kind of weather front on the way. Um, so it's basically um, these kind of, uh, this the high cloud is kind of in the shape of a, almost like a, a staff of some sort, mm-hmm. um, like a like a hook um so or like like a shepherd's staff um in the air so it's long and skinny and then hooked around at the end and you see a lot of that and that can indicate um that there's a front out there out to the west coming in so it might not be coming in over you but uh, there's so, there's some kind of frontal activity um in the vicinity so there's some some change ahead possibly yeah some kind of some kind of change that's right yeah the change that that brings in, you know, it can, you know, maybe bringing us in a bad day or something like that. Sometimes in the summer uh, <laughs> when we don't want it, but uh, um, something that you often hear in in when discussing climate change is if if you do say have a bad day, maybe it's, it's particularly cold or something, and um, you might hear, well, you know, where is all this global warming that we're hearing about? You know, why is it so cold? And uh, today, I thought things were going to warm up, and, and I'm sure you hear this as well, Liz. I mean, um, it's it's really the difference between weather and climate right yeah i mean it's like you know you might have had like a you know it's not not indicative of this year but like you know you might have had you know a really warm april and then a really cold may and people will say oh what's this global warming it's really cold and it's summertime um and um so it's a trend versus um what's happening day to day so like um there's something you know, that uh, Seamus said in the first episode was um, that weather um, weather is what you get, climate is what you expect. And um, I think that's that's what's, what the, the main thing is. It's like in climate, you'd expect May to be, um, or like you expect June or July to be warm, but um, weather is what you get. So, um so the temperature, like June might start off cold, might get really hot and then get cold again. So it's kind of, but climate is that, is the background trend um, of when you average everything out, what you'd expect um, in June. So that's why, you know, we might say that temperatures are above average um, if you're getting like 25 degrees in June. But 25 degrees in June, that's not like unusual it can happen of course but the average for june is somewhere around uh, 17 to 19 degrees um, for a maximum during the day so that's what that's kind of the difference there is is the climate average versus a day-to-day weather kind of um, unevenness i guess um climate is kind of smoothing it out and showing you the trend and it's but it's still important right i mean even though you know, using a similar example to yours, say, for example, someone asks us today, what's the weather going to be like on Christmas Day? You know, you're going to tell them, I can't tell you that. But you might be able to say to them, well, I know December, the average temperature of the last 30 years has been certainly colder than it is in June, you know. So whereas it's not a specific information, you can still make decisions on it. You can say, for example, well, my heating costs are going to be higher in December than they are in June or something like that. And it's similar with climate. We are asking different questions. We're still being provided with useful information that should allow us to make, uh, you know, decisions and, and base policy on that. And something that sort of feeds off that is, is you often hear people say like, well, you know, weather forecasts, really, you can only trust them out to a few days. How can we 
possibly you know predict the climate in 100 years time and and it, it, that's the same issue really it's that we're trying to predict different things right because weather models are interested in predicting you know very precise small scale um processes at you know specific times and specific locations um and because of that they have to deal with the sort of chaotic nature of the atmosphere in other words that you know, very small little changes at the beginning can lead to big changes down the road. So you have to be very precise at the start. And eventually, after a few days, you're going to become inaccurate just, just by the nature of the atmosphere. Whereas climate, because it's it's less concerned with those small-scale processes, it's, as you say, Les, it's more interested in uh, the averages uh, over, over those periods. Um, it's not uh, limited as much by that sort of chaotic nature of the atmosphere. So um, you're able to have a a longer term prediction. I think like it can it is confusing. Like I mean, you know, because you have like you have weather on the one hand and climate on the other, and uh, weather does like they both influence each other, <laughs> like and they both um, contribute to each other. I mean, like basically, the climate is based on the weather averages for the last you know however many like hundreds thirty years like whatever but um so they they are intertwined but they are quite different and when it comes to forecasting um both they they are approached in very different ways like you said um the weather is the initial value problem so so for a weather forecast the the start um the starting point of where that weather um of where that weather model starts off is really important um and once you get to 10 to 14 days like it, it becomes like the. It's basically beyond the. Um, it's beyond the physical limit of the model. We can't can't really get much further than that because of this initial value. But the difference with it with a climate model is that um, we're not so concerned with initial conditions. We're talking about the amount of available energy in the system. So so we're not measuring like one particular day we're just measuring how much available energy was there um in this year <laughs> for example um and and then kind of producing a forecast based on on the amount of energy within the system and so and and it's basically like a it's almost like a i don't know uh, this might be out of left field, but it's almost like a chemistry experiment. We're adding, we add some things in to see what that does, then take it out and see what that does. For example, we add this much CO2 in, what does it do to the system? Oh, it makes everything warmer. Um, we take out that CO2. Um, oh, what does it do? It makes everything, like it, it doesn't make any change at all, or it makes things, uh, there's a slight cooling observed. Or whatever. So it's it's a different um, it's a different uh, process, I think, that's involved in the in the modelling of it, and and why why the accuracy. I think we really need to be able to separate those two things. Um, weather forecasting and climate forecasting are really not the same thing at all. <laughs> Even though they they are related, they contribute to each other, but they're not the same. They're not. I I I mean, I feel one way you can kind of think of it is, I suppose people are. People have been, say, particularly in the last few months, walking their dogs a lot, you know, to, to get outside with any for any excuse that they could get. And uh, it's it's a little like walking your dog is a little bit like the difference between weather and climate. I mean, if you if you take your dog out and you're going to walk from one end of the beach to the other 
uh, your dog is going to go forwards and backwards and left to right and run around in circles and uh, and that's like predicting the weather, trying to predict the patterns that your dog is going to take, uh, the erratics or running over and back. But you have a definite destination. You're walking from one end of the beach to the other and that general sort of overall trend, that general motion is what your climate is, right? So it's it's a general uh, average and progression of of that movement but the weather is the roundabout squiggles that are on that on that line as you're getting there. That's actually a really good way of, of explaining it now. <laughs> I can actually see that, yeah. It's kind of that underlying um, trend that's happening. And, and people um, question whether climate models are reliable and whether, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to predict something in the future. So how do we know how accurate they are? With, with, with weather models that, that you work with every day, Liz, um, you know in a few days how accurate they were. You know, this is called forecast verification. You can you can verify how well they performed in different situations and, and all that kind of stuff. Whereas with climate models, generally you're predicting something that may be decades or centuries away. Um, but there there are ways to do that. There's there's what's known as climate reanalysis. And essentially what that is, is that you you get your climate model and you use it to predict something that has already happened. So like, for example... You might predict the climate from 1950 to 2000 with your model. And then you've got a really good, you know, observed data record that you can compare that with. So if you see that it, it you know, it performs well and it accurately predicts um, uh, relative to the, to the observations that we have, we can have more confidence then that it'll perform well into the future as well. Um, and that, that allows us then to sort of uh, take that, that model and apply it to the future and apply some level of uncertainty to it. But I mean, the reality is that, that all models have some uncertainty, some errors, um, as you know, as, as you would say yourself, Liz, you know, all models are, are wrong. It's just about, you know, how wrong or, or unwrong but some they are. some are useful. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's almost the strength of, I think, climate science that the fact that there are so many, you know, there are uncertainties in models and, and some of them use quite different methods. So you think that maybe they would all be showing different results, but they don't. Despite all these differences, the vast majority show a consensus that our climate is warming and that it will continue to do so as we inject more CO2 due to human activities. And that that's seen, as I say, the vast majority of climate models show that uh, despite all their differences and all their uncertainties. Yeah, I think like the, the whole thing, you know, we talked about our, our weather and climate um, and we were talking about weather and climate myths. And I think, you know, the the fact is, is like most of the proverbs that we talked about earlier, they're mostly to do with natural, for, like what might call them natural forecasting methods. And they're, they are actually just for the short range. Um, most long range proverbs um, have no meteorological basis at all. Um, and that includes uh, the moon. Um, <laughs> I think, um, like the uh, the there was uh, or there is some. Uh, there's a there's a guy who who uses the moon to um, to forecast the weather, or, or did for a time. Um, and uh, 
but it, it was something that a, a former colleague of mine in New Zealand who did say if long range forecasting were as easy as following the same sequence of weather as occurred 18 years and 10 years ago, 10 days ago, the veracity of the method would have been clearly established a long time ago and everybody would be using it to great financial advantage. So basically, the thing is, is like a lot of these natural forecasting methods, while they're while some of them do have an elements of truth in them, they're they're usually for the short range and um, forecasting for the long range just they just don't work just reminds me of uh, what you were saying there i remember a daryl breen sketch where he was talking about uh, medicine and he was saying how comparing modern medicine to you know ancient you know herbal remedies and stuff and he's saying that modern medicine is the ancient herbal stuff that we realized worked and we stuck with that and the stuff that we didn't use is what's <laughs> is what we left behind so it's it's uh I think similar to what you're saying, Clive, we know that if, if it did, if it really did work, we'd already have monetized it already. Yeah, that's the thing. Like, you know, um, yeah, this is this is like modern forecasting techniques is is where we're at today. And they, you know, the models, they're not perfect, but, you know, they're getting there. And we're like, you know, they're just um, none of them like some are useful, basically. But um, as to do, but climate, it has to be said that climate models um, are far more reliable, I think, than um, than weather forecasting models in in the way for for what they're used for. Um, like weather forecasting models are inherently um, chaotic, and um, you have to use um, an ensemble. And I think. Climate modeling, we we do they they started using ensembles from the get go with with climate models. So it is you know the the consensus is that um, that the greater amount of CO two that you put into the system, the warmer the system gets, and that has many many downstream effects. Absolutely, and at this stage, we are not just relying on models, right? We do have a substantial temperature record thanks to you know the years and years of observers and and you know developments in remote sensing and satellite meteorology and all that kind of stuff which has given us you know long temperature records that show an increasing trend um you mentioned the the measurements from hawaii that shows an increasing yearly trend in, in co2 um and then looking further back we have ice cores and sediment cores and tree rings and things like that that show us uh, and help us understand the context of all these measurements and how uh, stark it is in comparison to what's happened before for the last you know several thousands of years the older sayings and and you know myths in, in a way are they contain some evidence and some reasoning but they're usually the offspring of a common tendency to form conclusions from too limited observation of the facts well we hope that we've provided some more facts to uh to you today there are many other uh, sayings, uh, weather sayings, and, and uh, also climate uh, questions out there as well. And we'd be very interested to hear them. So uh, feel free to to send them in either to our, our email address, uh, podcast at met.ie, or get in touch with the, the various Met Aaron uh, social media platforms. Um, but it's uh, been really interesting talking about them today and, and, and researching them as well. And uh, speaking of climate, I guess we'll, we'll go over to Paul Moore now who has had uh, some very interesting uh, results from our spring uh, this year. Paul, it's been an exceptionally dry spring this year. 
Hello, Noel. Yes, it's certainly been one for the record, Brooks. Um, spring in 2020 for Ireland has been very dry and sunny and warmer than average in most places. Um, the situation kind of developed because blocking high pressure dominated our weather through most of the spring, uh, which pushed the jet stream further north away from the country. Um, the position of the high pressure systems relative to Ireland is important to determine the wind direction and the airflow over us. So when the high pressure was situated to our northwest, such as first half of May, um, a cool north and northeasterly airflow dominated. However, as the high pressure developed to our east or southeast towards the end of May, a warm south or southeast airflow dominated, which happened, which brought up some very warm tropical continental air mass towards the end of May. Was that dry weather countrywide, Paul? I mean, in terms of rainfall, did we see similar patterns? Or? Yes, uh, it was dry and average everywhere, especially in the east of the country. So rainfall was below average, um, especially in the east, and our Dublin and Mead stations recorded their driest spring on record. This includes Phoenix Park Station, where records go back 170 years. So that was quite um, interesting. And uh, Mullingar in County West Mead had its dry spring for 67 years. Mark Cree in County Sligo had its dry spring for 45 years. And Gertine County Tipperary had its dry spring for 64 years. And there were drought conditions reported at many stations across the country. And, and then I guess sort of adding to all that dry weather is that it's been, it's been quite warm as well. Yes, the temperatures were above average in most places. The only exception was Dublin Airport where it was slightly below average for the spring. And this was mainly due to a lot of a lot of easterly winds off the cool Irish Sea, which kind of kept the East Coast cooler. Um, several stations actually had their highest spring temperature on record during a very warm spell at the end of, of May. These included Mullingar and County Westmead with 25.6 degrees Celsius, where the record length is 70 years. Clare Morrison County Mayo with 26.3 degrees Celsius, where the record length is 71 years, and Casement Aerodrome in County Dublin with 25.7 degrees Celsius, where the record length is 56 years. These were all reported on the 28th of May. I guess with, with all of us sort of stuck at home, uh, a lot of us anyway, and, and trying to get outside for our daily exercise, we had a lot of sunshine, which was which was a big help. Yes, there was, um, the sunshine hours were above average uh, all across our stations that record sunshine. And, and both our Dublin stations, actually, Casement Aerodrome and Dublin Airport, had their sunniest spring on record. And the record length for Casement is 56 years and 78 years for Dublin Airport. So it was exceptionally sunny, especially in the east and southeast of the country. And no, were there any major wind events uh, through the spring, Paul? It was quite... It was, it was Quiet enough, um, although there was a couple of storm systems that affected us. The highest winds uh, of the season, surprisingly enough, came on the 22nd of May, um, when Ireland was affected uh, by a storm system contain, containing remnants of tropical storm Arthur, which was the first named storm of, of the storm of this year's Atlantic hurricane season. And the storm just moved up along close to the west coast uh, of Ireland and gave quite strong winds. Looking then, Paul, at the at the global picture, how have uh, temperatures been looking? Well, globally, uh, so far this year, the land and ocean surface temperatures are on par with with uh, what actually the second highest on record after 2016, and the spring 2020 is also the second highest temperatures on record after 2016. So it's looking like the year, uh, if it keeps going the way we are, will be one of the warmest years on record. Is uh... 
kind of the dry spring we had. Is that something that we should expect looking forward, you know, looking into the future as, as our climate warms? It is what, uh, what is expected in the summer months in Ireland. The, the current climate projections for Ireland is for wetter, warmer winters and drier, hotter summers. So the spring that we've just had is kind of going along with that pattern kind of leading into us leading into the summer uh, where the weather patterns um, can get kind of stuck and blocked uh, for quite a, a long period of time well, that's very interesting thanks for that paul we'll uh, chat to you again next month okay thanks very much Noel. talk to you next month bye so that brings us to the end of this episode uh, thanks to Alan Bennett at Headstuff and our colleagues in the communications team at Met Aaron and at the Department of Housing Planning and Local Government. And thank you, the listener, for tuning in. Yeah, thank you for tuning in. It's been a, a year since we started the podcast. It's been great to see our numbers growing and to be able to interact with all of you through uh, emails and, and Facebook and, and all the usual platforms. So if you'd like to get in touch again, be sure to uh, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook using the hashtag Podcast or emailing us at podcast at met.ae. Uh, thanks for your, all your support and your comments and suggestions so far and keep them coming. We're going to leave you uh, with a rendition from the Isobars for uh, Here Comes the Sun, quite appropriate given that it is the summer solstice. Um, we hope you'll join us next time, but until then, thanks for listening.
Here comes the sun.